Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did not come out, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. Then he realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Maxwell. It's always fun having your favorite son read scripture for you. They all know. Thanksgiving went well, I hope. We spend some time on Monday as a staff praying for us as a church that we would make use of the opportunities that God gives to us that when we gather as families, we have an opportunity to give thanks. But not only that, but to have faith conversations, to talk about what God has done, to not just give a general thanks, but to speak accurately and clearly and passionately about the goodness of God and how he has really demonstrated the reality of himself and his character by giving us blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And so we pray that Uh, Those prayers that were given up uh, for you and on your behalf, and especially on behalf of maybe those that you ate with that did not know the Lord like you know the Lord. I pray that those conversations will continue to linger long in their minds. We, as Justin said, 
are about to start a series, um, rather short, uh, just a few weeks. In the beginning, we're gonna be walking through the book of Acts, or sorry, the book of Acts, the book of Luke. So turn with me to Luke chapter one, because uh, uh, that's where we're gonna be looking at this morning, the, the verses that Maxwell read. Um, but Advent is, is, a, is a time, I remember a number of years ago, somebody asked me, why don't we celebrate Advent the way that a lot of other churches do? And our answer at that time, this was many years ago, our answer at that time was, you know, it really hasn't been our custom. Uh, that there are some very liturgical churches that get really into Advent. They have special banners and they have special colors and they uh, change the, 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 the look of the sanctuary depending upon the time of the year. Um, they have candles that they light every Sunday and that's just not us. <laughs> it was true at the time. And things have changed uh, as we've decided um, that this was something that we thought would help us understand and respond to God's timing. Advent, um, we, we knew that it existed, right? We're aware of that, that it existed. But for many of us, Advent is a lot like the New Year's Eve, or sorry, the Christmas Eve uh, plays that we kind of watch uh, uh, what churches do about some young man, or I mean, could you mean like a movie, some person who's trying to get the Christmas spirit. Have you ever tried to just get the Christmas spirit? Have you ever tried to get, to get into the mood for this time of year? Um, and so sometimes that can really be what it's almost about for us. Isn't that what this is, trying to get into the mood? Um, a little bit, well, a little bit, it's, it's probably a sign of the times that we live in, and maybe the times have always been this way, um, that we can get so wrapped up in other things that we fail to focus, and we fail to perceive or to be aware of some things, uh, that we get so caught up maybe in a certain routine uh, that we fail to appreciate the moments for what they really are. And so that's why we've decided to, to slow down, to draw some extra attention with the way that we set up the room and with the way uh, that we organize our time, with the, the way we even do our sermons. Um, I, I like this, this is, as I've been reading a lot about not just this time of year or about our particular text this morning, um, I came across a really good quote this morning that I wanna share with you. Um, this is somebody that writes uh, kind of on the whole idea of, of Advent and preparing our hearts. Um, does, does a great job explaining the, the, the difficulty that I think we have with this time of year. The message of Advent, which is to wait, to wait patiently, to wait expectantly, to, to hold something back and to not just go all the way in. The message of Advent doesn't fit neatly into a soundbite or a to a vignette. It's too complex, too deep. To compete with glitter and noise, it's a hard sell in a culture that would rather skip straight to the big finish. And so that's why our desire is for us to sit down, slow down, and to look at these texts that prepare our hearts and minds, not just so that Christmas can be more, but so that Christmas can be what it is a time where you and I have the opportunity to celebrate God's fulfillment of his promise to come back, to return, 
and to accomplish his purpose and promise. And not only that, but Advent also gears and orients our heart and our mind so that we can wait expectantly, patiently, for the second coming of Jesus. So the idea of Advent really has a a number of different aspects to it. And and we're gonna be going through Luke's gospel beginning in uh, chapter one, beginning in verse five. We kind of skipped over the first four verses, which is where Luke describes the reason why he's writing the gospel. He kind of begins by saying, Theophilus, I've written this account. Many of others have, many others have actually done this. They've decided to give an account of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And now I'm doing that after carefully examining all of these things. I want you to know, most excellent Theophilus, uh, someone who was involved in the Roman military, I want you to know for certain these things that have been told to you about who Jesus Christ was. That's what Luke's gospel is. And so I'm gonna do something that's a little bit different for me in terms of my preaching. It's not different for me in terms of my teaching. Um, But what I would like to do this morning is to uh, walk through the text with you. Is that okay? If we just literally walk through the text, almost like verse by verse, section by section, and I would like to teach this to you because I think so often we fly through these texts and I kind of give, or someone else that's preaching that morning gives you a couple of things to take home with you. But I thought, no, there's so much rich and deep information that Luke carefully investigated. And I think it's about time that we just spend a few moments just talking about those things. So if you have your Bible, we're gonna be looking through the verses that Maxwell read section by section. I'm gonna begin by breaking open the first uh, three verses, verses five through seven. Luke continues. In the days of King Herod of Judea, so King Herod would have been a king appointed by uh, kind of in a joint agreement between the people of the land, but he has to have the okay from the Roman authorities. So when you hear about King Herod, and mostly when we're talking about Christmas, King Herod's not a good guy. Well, he wasn't a good guy back then either. Uh, Nobody really, really liked him. He actually was part Edomite, which the Jews did not have a strong relationship with, and part Jewish. And so not only did he have a kind of that questionable lineage, um, but they really saw him as a representative of Rome. And so this is not the kind of king that the Jews were excited about. This is somebody that they actually did not genuinely in any way appreciate. But this is the time in which all of these things begin to take place. So you can't help but think, in, in those days, King Herod, and yet we're waiting for the birth of a king. So who is it, King Herod or this new king? And that's what the story is going to um, reveal. There was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. So this is literally describing um, their, their character. So whenever we look in the Bible, there's two competing ideas that we constantly have. The first one is this. The Bible actually teaches that there is no one righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That's Romans chapter three. The Old Testament teaches it. Everyone is a sinner. There's no one that's not a sinner. There's no one that is righteous. And that is true because the Bible declares it to be true. We know it from the word of God, and we know it from our own experiences. Everyone's a mess. And yet occasionally, you will see words like this, and they were righteous, and they were blameless. 
This is the same phrase that is actually used of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. Abraham was righteous and his faith in God declared him righteous before God. So you have these two ideas that no one is righteous and yet at the same time, there is not the kind of righteousness that saves them, the kind of righteousness where they do not require God's grace or God's kindness or God's mercy. It is not that kind of righteousness. It is not the kind of righteousness that saves them but is the kind of righteousness that is visible for all to see. It is the kind of righteousness that the people that grew up with Elizabeth and Zechariah, that know them, they understand them to be faithful, people who are faithful, people who are consistent, people who know the word and follow the word. They are people who are, and they're in, in kind of in our popular sense, they are good folk. They are good folk. And this is their character, and this is their nature, and, and we see this as a tremendous compliment to them. And maybe one of the reasons why Luke describes this in terms of their character is because verse seven creates a little bit of a problem. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. And so maybe one of the reasons why Luke wants to point out this, that they were righteous people, is because just like in even more modern scientific eras, we always wonder, I wonder what I did to deserve whatever kind of difficulty that we're going through. And so here is Zechariah and Elizabeth, and especially in this day and age, when it was the Lord who was the one who opened or kept the womb barren, they would wonder, I wonder what Elizabeth did wrong. I wonder what Zechariah was doing wrong. I wonder why God doesn't love them. I wonder why God isn't caring for them. I wonder why God isn't doing something for them. And what Luke makes very, very clear is that it is not based upon their righteousness for they are following the Lord faithfully. And Zechariah is a priest and Elizabeth is a wonderful woman. Um, this story is actually only found in Luke's gospel. And I think it's even interesting to note that when you look at this account, you're reminded that Luke takes particular interest in these women. And there's going to be a number of them in our series on Advent that describe, that, that kind of point us to the fact that God cares deeply for these that are righteous and kind and are pursuing him and are waiting expectantly for God to be the one to vindicate or to free them or to help them in some miraculous way. Look at me, look, look, look with me at verses eight through 10. And when his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened, and, and whenever that usually is said in the Bible, it just so happened, that's when you stop and go, no, 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 no. Things don't just happen like that. There's, there's no coincidences. No, God is doing something here. And I definitely think Luke is trying to point some attention to that. This isn't some kind of an accident the, 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 the timing of Zechariah being there, um, the allotment of that. So Zechariah would have been a priest, and as it's already been stated, Elizabeth is also from the house of Aaron. So both of them are Levites. And what you actually have in their, uh, in their time of their fulfillment is Zechariah actually would have spent um, uh, two weeks a year in the temple. 
And here's one of those weeks that he is going to be spent there. There's, there's 24 groups that are going through it. And he at this time has been, uh, been chosen to do it. And then his duty while he is before the Lord is going to be more specified. Something very specifically is going to be chosen by lot. And in the Bible, lots are determined by God. This is according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. And at that hour of the incense, the whole assembly of people was praying outside. Whenever Luke uses this phrase, the people, he is describing all of Israel. So this is the picture. As the priests are doing their function on the top of the Temple Mount, and Zechariah has been chosen, just so happens that he is selected. What he is selected to do is to go and take the incense, which represents the prayers of the people, And then he with two attendants are going to walk into a more holy space. Now he's not the high priest, so he won't go into the holy of holies, but he will stand before the veil, which has the holy of holies behind it. And as he stands there, there is the plate that burns up the incense representing the prayers to God. And when he stands there, his two attendants then leave him alone and he offers this incense up before God. There's just no way that you can't kind of get a sense that what is is happening here is that the people are praying and the people are continually praying and continually seeking after God. And and what might they be asking? Well, I'm sure there are always those things that are very personal, the personal prayers that we often bring up before God. But you need to remember that during this time, there was a deep sense of not just urgency, but a deep sense of, of the oppression that is around them. There was a deep sense of expectation that God would someday do something. And now the years have been mounting up. And so you have this strong sense, this spirit of there is a time in which the Messiah might actually come. And the people are praying. And Zechariah goes in. Now it's interesting, and I think this is one of the great lessons of this text. How many times have you known that God is faithful? How many times have you prayed and desired for God to do something and then waited? And then in that moment of waiting, wondered. And then in that moment of wondering, as time continues to to lapse, doubted. How many times has this happened? How many times has someone speaking for Zechariah, just like me, was chosen just like that to come just right here to do just this exact same thing. And you wonder, when? And you wait. Zechariah waits. Literally, I don't know how many times he would have been able to do this. Um, One commentary wrote, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. We don't know if he was ever chosen by Lot before, but you can kind of get a sense, no, there's something special happening, isn't there? There's something special happening. But there's still the waiting. And all the people are outside praying, God, come. God, be faithful to what you've promised. May may this year be different because of what you are about to do. You know that feeling? That expectation? 
that desire, that wonder, and then maybe even sometimes that doubt. As it continues, verses 11 through 13, and then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He was not ready. Standing to the right of the altar of the incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid which is usually a sign that someone is terrified. When, when God or an angel says, and this is kind of a repeated phrase, when someone stumbles into or comes upon the presence of God or God overwhelms them, there is this overwhelming sense of fear and then there is this reassurance, which is interesting because it's not the kind of, don't be afraid because there's nothing dangerous. No, I get why you are afraid. I get that you understand that something very unique and something very powerful and something overwhelming stands right in front of you. And yet I say to you, do not be afraid. It's the kind of comfort that comes, not because that thing which overwhelmed us is any less, but that it comes in peace, not as an enemy. And so that's what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah because your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. Now, what's interesting is, is up until this point, we have no idea that's what he's been praying for. Nowhere does it say that that's what he's been praying for. And it's interesting, I had to spend some time this week reflecting on the idea that it is, it is a beautiful thing when our prayers that go up before God, our prayers that go up before God over and over and over again, how can they mesh with what God plans to do in the world? It's so often, from, from, so often that I know how to pray for, you know, the things that are going on in my life, for my family, for my health. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The Bible actually teaches that we should lift up all kinds of prayer requests before God. But what a beautiful thing it is when you pray, like, God, I want to see a work in your world. I want to see you come. Imagine Zechariah's prayer. God, I eagerly desire for the Messiah to come. Send him. God, come and rescue us from the oppression that we are going through. God, come and do something. And by the way, um, I have another one for you. Actually, I was talking to my wife Elizabeth earlier today. And I have another one, uh, God. I would love it if, if we could have a son. If somehow you would give us a child. I, I know that we're old in age, but we have this amazing book and it's not the first time you've done something like this. So God, will you please give us a child? And oh yeah, by the way, we want your Messiah to come. And then they collide. I've heard your prayer. I know how much you eagerly desire a son. And I'm coming. And those two events collide. Zechariah had no idea that what he was praying for, and this is a good reminder for us, was so much more when God finally answered it. The prayers that we have the prayers that we offer in faith, I, I don't think that they're like selfish. I, I just think that they have, a, they have a self-interest in them, which isn't always bad. It was nothing wrong for Zechariah and Elizabeth to eagerly desire a son. And God says, and, and this is what I will do with that son. 
that God's will and our prayers might collide this Advent season. That as you take your requests, the most personal, the most intrusive, some of the heaviest burdens on your heart, taking them to the Lord repeatedly, wondering and waiting, and then seeing what God does. What an incredible picture of how God promises You're going to have a son and you are going to name him, and this is where he picks the name, John. And as we find out, that's a big deal because that's not a name that they have. I mean, recently we found out the the name of our our newest granddaughter and we don't have an Adeline. Where'd that name come from? Oh, we just like it. Okay, just checking. Like that, we don't have an Adeline, but we, we will have one, but we don't have one. And here God directs, much like God will direct for another young boy to be born, and you will give him the name Jesus. God selects the name, and you will give him the name John. Look at verses 14 through 16. And there will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is still in his mother's womb. And we know he will kick at the reminder that Jesus is on the way. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, to the Lord their God. You know, it's funny when we look at children and the coming of children and we look at our children and the gift of our children and we desire for them to be great, don't we not? I mean, that's why, that's why if the one thing you love to tell me about your kids is how great they are. Um, I remember when, when, our, when our boys were really, really little and I just kind of just wondered if something was wrong with our kids because everybody else, when they were talking about their kids, I don't know if you know this, but my kid's the smartest kid in the world. And I'm like, oh, okay, so that means I've got at least second place, maybe, and then somebody else says that their kid's the smartest. And, and then I, I heard that your kid made the honor roll. Congratulations, that's awesome. And then you have all the accomplishments on the back of your van, which is great. And then Facebook came along. And so now we get to post it all there. And we post all of the great things that our children have done. All of the great things that our grandchildren have done. Is that not what we do? Totally normal. Totally human. It is, a, it is a natural desire that we have to sell. How many of you have just the greatest grandchild in the world? Raise your hand. Yeah, all of you are wrong, because this one. <laughs> and then I have three, right? So you get the complexity of it. But realize that when God introduces this through the angel here, there's going to be joy and delight for you and many will rejoice at his birth. And so often when we think of that, I, I usually get tied up in just, oh yeah, Elizabeth, I heard you're pregnant. How exciting. But it's so much more than that. I had never really looked at this verse and thought to myself, like I have rejoiced in this. Like this is an event that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And here I am now still rejoicing in this this great day. 
It wasn't just this one small little moment where Elizabeth and Zechariah are able to take some pleasure in this. No, when God intervenes, when God finally comes, when God is at move, movement in the world, what we see is a level of greatness and a level of joy and a level of rejoicing and a level of delight that is unparalleled. I mean, you can't help but read what this angel is prophesying and realize there is a lot that is happening here. He's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. That's new. He's gonna be set apart. He's gonna be dedicated, never drinking wine or beer. <laughs> Obviously, he's not Canadian. Why? Do you know why? It's not that beer and wine are something that Christians aren't supposed to be involved in. That's not the issue here. The issue of beer and wine, especially tied to the Holy Spirit, is a common occurrence in the Bible. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? What's the connection? And the connection is not that the alcohol is terrible or wrong. It's that we never want, as Paul describes to the Ephesian church, as we're seeing with the life of, uh, of, of, uh, of John the Baptist, we want the controlling influence, the comforting influence, the wild behavior to be explained by what? The Spirit. Why does your son act like that? Oh, you know, kids, when they get a Coke in them, you know, they're on that sugar. How many of you have had kids and, you know, after like two in the afternoon, no more candy? Because they, they get out of control. Nope, not John. No, he's set apart. He's devoted. He is dedicated. He's gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and the general, I love verse 16, the general um, ministry of John the Baptist is that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. That's kind of a greater, more of a specified way of describing what John is going to do. And the wording of this is really interesting. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children um, it's not the children to their fathers, it's the fathers to their children. When this is usually used, it's actually describing which ones are the faithless ones. And the faithless ones are usually the ones that are mentioned first. To turn, to cause repentance in the hearts of the fathers towards their children because they have failed. There is a fundamental break that is being described here in their culture where fathers have not done what fathers should do. They have not led their children like they should do. And what is John doing? John is coming and he is preparing the way for the Lord. This is a great Christmas message, is it not? To turn a father's heart toward their child. Again, just so we're clear, this isn't, yeah, you know, I really need to appreciate Max more. 
I really need to just value him more. I mean, that might be part of the equation, but obviously this is all in the context of recognizing a father's responsibility, not only before sons and daughters, but before God. The responsibility that fathers have to lead, to lead faithfully, to lead pointing and directing to the plans and the purposes of God. And when John comes, it's not some individualized, hey, we all need to try to be better people. We all got some things that we can work on in our lives. What I love about the Christmas story, when it is properly understood, is there is a strong family dynamic that is integrated into the story. That when God comes, when God appears, when God arrives, And when God sends the one who will prepare for the arrival of his anointed one, that the process that happens when the good news is being told of what God has done is there is a change of heart. And oh, that it would begin in us as fathers. Recognizing the rights and responsibilities that God has given to us that you and I um, could do more than just try harder. That's, that's not the biblical, <laughs> the, the biblical mandate is not try harder, it's to turn, to repent. And this is the ministry of John, to turn their hearts towards their children in faithful obedience to God and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous so that they would make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Here's what's interesting. That idea of preparing for a prepared people isn't just that we're prepared to receive. Yeah, we really need to be ready with open hands to take what God gives us. No, it's prepared to serve. It's yes, there's transformation that is happening. There, yes, there's a preparation that is happening. But it is not a preparation to be passively receiving, to be actively engaging in God's plans and purposes in the world. So what we see in the gospel accounts are not just God blessing people, not just us sitting there and going, wow, isn't it great to be blessed? But to look at the blessings in our hands and saying, why has God given us this? Why has God prepared us for this? Why has God done all of these things for his glory? For our joy. But what? For others' benefit. Oh, that we would see that with the ministry that John started And the ministry that we are now reflecting upon not only prepares fathers and the disobedient to to realign and to rightly align themselves with God, but that we as a people would receive the wonderful blessings of this time of year with the intent and purpose of being a missional people so that we would go out and share. That is the gospel story. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see, now we have to go and tell. Come and receive, go and give. That's what Advent is all about. Verse 18. Lots of good things happening up until here. And then all of a sudden, Zechariah speaks. And it's interesting because he is a righteous man. And for the most part, 
really a good guy, but this is all very reminiscent of the period of the judges. And Zechariah asks the angel, how can I know this? It's interesting, some translations um, kind of share the, the way that Zechariah speaks here with the way that Mary speaks. When, when Mary gets told, you know, I hate to kind of jump ahead in the story, but I think you've already heard about this. Mary, uh, Mary is told that she is going to be pregnant and Mary responds with how? How? And what she's asking is not, not a doubting question. She's trying to figure out, okay, I'm not and I'm gonna need to, so how, right? You understand the complexity of what she's asking. What he is asking is, how can I know? Do you see the difference? Mary's is much more one of faith. This has got some bite to it. This sounds a lot like Gideon. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. It's interesting how often we can spend a lot of time in prayer asking and not believing. And I will never stand in front of you, ever stand in front of you and, and, and somehow um, reduce prayer uh, to some kind of cosmic game that you play with God or even with ourselves. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered, well, maybe I just didn't believe and that's why? How many of you have ever wondered that? I've wondered that. That's not, a, that's not a game we are actually called to play. But Zechariah asks, how can I know? I mean, this doesn't make any sense and I'm an old man. I'm gonna need some kind of a sign before I actually believe this. Remember, right, he, he's not even with his wife. Like he's on temple duty. So you're giving me this promise? It's, it's a lot like Abraham's promise. And when I come back a year from now, there'll be a little boy playing right here. How do I know? Zechariah, how do I know? It's interesting, you know what the name Zechariah means? God has remembered. And he sits there in the presence of God. I mean, a miraculous angel speaks and his response is, yeah, this is too much. How can I know? And I think it's, you're gonna notice this. Zechariah has spoken about himself. How can I know? And then the angel responds to him. You wanna use the word I, how about this? I am Gabriel one of two named angels in the Bible. The last time we've heard from Gabriel, he was with Daniel and doing some pretty amazing things, bringing about the ends. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. See, here's the other thing I love about this, is that even in the midst of Zechariah's righteous living and faithful service, he encounters God and he's filled with wonder and doubt, and none of these things undo God. Your righteousness, amen. Your doubt and your struggles, amen, in the hands of God. And it's not our best and not our worst can stop God. This Advent season, may you find great joy in being a righteous 
man or woman, taking seriously the word of God. And may your righteousness never like swell up in your mind or in your heart. In this Advent, if you are really struggling with doubt and disbelief and failure, I love how neither of those things undo God's plan. No, no, no. All of these things will be fulfilled in their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them, but remained speechless, which was his, you wanted a sign? I'll give you a sign. I heard Elizabeth was grateful for the sign. That's what I, I heard. It's in a commentary. Justin, did you read that? Yeah, okay. When days of his ministry completed, he went back home. And he goes home not being able to speak, not being able to communicate this message. And God does the wonder. Verses 24 and 25. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And here you have part of the amazing story of God's plan and God's purpose of people waiting expectantly, but they still have to wait for God to do something. Of people with great excitement, with a mixture of righteousness and brokenness. And God is faithful each and every day. What Advent does, and this is our invitation, Advent invites us to open our hearts and minds to the coming of God's Messiah. The first time, we call that Christmas. And the second time, we call that forever. And may we, in light of the story that we have heard through these two people who had no idea exactly how they were going to play a part in God's story, and yet they did. May we look to these as examples of how we might follow, how we might respond to God and to his Holy Spirit. But instead of just trying to mimic Zechariah or Elizabeth, one who struggled and one who obviously struggled less, may the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth encourage our own reflection, our own anticipation, our own preparation. But I think most importantly, our own participation in what God is doing. Our participation in what God is doing. Isn't that interesting? Christmas isn't just about receiving. It's about receiving and understanding why the gift has been given, realizing that it is never intended to end with us. And maybe that's why this meal signifies so much. Rightly signifies so much. It was definitely a meal that was given as a gift to the disciples. A reminder of God's faithfulness in the past, present, and future, just like we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God eagerly desires to do a great work, to accomplish everything that he has promised 
And in the midst of that, there is for us this Advent season, invitation towards participation. Inviting us in to receive and then sending us out to go. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave a piece each to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, take it and eat. This is the cup representing my blood given for you, for your redemption. Take it and drink. And so we received. And now there is an invitation for us to participate. And maybe one of the best things that we can do before we go and share with others the good news that we might know about Jesus is begin by sharing that with one another before a mighty, an almighty and holy God. Let us stand and worship well, church.